Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Mary Eberstadt, author of the new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andrew. This is uh, sort of a follow-up to a previous book you've written, Adam and Eve After the Pill, but it sort of goes in a different direction, uh, charting some of the cultural trends in the years since that first book came out. Now, both the first book and the second book are concerned with the impact of the sexual revolution, right? That's sort of what the pill means in the title. Yes, that's right. And the distinction is pretty simple between the two volumes. In the first book published 10 years ago, I looked at the effects of the sexual revolution on individuals, men, women, children, families, because my argument, which was very countercultural at the time, was that empirical evidence suggested that the impact of the sexual revolution had been much worse for people than we are commonly told, than the dominant secular narrative has it. And so in that book, I marshaled a lot of evidence from the social sciences, not from theology or philosophy, but ordinary evidence to show what the sexual revolution had done to people. And in this second book, 10 years later, I'm widening the aperture to uh, the maximum that I can. I'm looking at the impact of the sexual revolution on three broad areas, society, politics, and most important, the church. What has the sexual revolution done in these areas? And once more, I'm using perfectly secular evidence. This is not a work of theology in order to make the case that a lot of the trouble that we are seeing in society today has a foundation that is not widely acknowledged in the secular culture, and that foundation is the sexual revolution itself. So in other words, the first volume is a kind of microscopic look at what the revolution has wrought, and the second volume is a macrocosmic look. One of the big impacts on society that you cover in this newer book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, is the sort of rise of identity and identity politics um, as sort of a major cultural trend that was really in all three of those areas, including the church. It got me thinking about how the sexual revolution impacted the way we understood ourselves and specifically how individual autonomy was emphasized. Because if a person is going to you know, want greater control over how they determine their own sexual life, which the literal pill and also the figurative pill of the sexual revolution offered people, that's going to lead to kind of a greater desire to have control over every element of life and to conceive of the self as sort of an atomistic unit. Was that sort of mindset really common in society before the the sexual revolution? Well, I think the sexual revolution entrenched it, and it did this in a number of ways. As I argue in one chapter of the book, What's happening out there at the metaphysical level is that after the revolution, more and more people decide that it is up to individuals who direct creation, not only in the obvious way of determining who gets born and who doesn't, but also at the other end of life through euthanasia. And now, as we're seeing with transgenderism, there is this desire, deep set, and even more so after the revolution, to say, 
God is not in charge of any of this. We have no one to answer to. We're all free to direct ourselves. So what I'm looking at in the book is the effect of this radical autonomy, say 60 years later or after 60 years of living this way. Because I think, Andrew, that one of the biggest unintended consequences is loneliness. What we did by living so autonomously, by deciding to direct creation, was in effect to subtract people out of Western lives. And let me be very specific about that. What did the sexual revolution do? One thing it did was shrink the family. Mm-hmm. It also increased the number of broken and fatherless homes for all kinds of empirical reasons that I get into in the book and in the footnotes that listeners might be curious about, but that we we don't have to stop over right here. In effect, we subtracted people out of our lives. And so as a result, today's young have many fewer siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, extended family who they can look to for social learning, or for just examples of how to live a life. And this collapse of social learning is part of what is ailing us. When you look at the problem of loneliness among the young, the problem of loneliness among the old, very few people connect the dots back to what happened in the 1960s. But that is the real origin of the loneliness problem. In other words, radical autonomy gave birth to loneliness on a scale not seen before. And you demonstrate this in the book with examples from the animal kingdom too, right? With like non-human primates and how family connections and then conversely loneliness impacts them. Yes, I think that's a fascinating connection because we find these things difficult to talk about when we're talking about human beings. And very often people get defensive and they say, well, you're pointing a finger at single moms or you're pointing a finger at broken homes. I want to be very clear that I'm not doing any of that. I'm trying to understand what's happened on the macro level and not judge any individual choice here. Right. That's why I find the the animal science helpful, because over the years, we've learned a lot more about mammals in particular. And mammals in particular thrive in family units. Mammals live not in unrelated packs of creatures running around. No, they are very much like us. Their social organization may differ, but it is a social organization. And horrible experiments have been done on animals that are very familiar, showing that when they are separated from their families and from others of their kind, they become dysfunctional. This was the meaning of the experiments on rhesus monkeys in the 1950s, for example. Sometimes they become permanently dysfunctional. And so my point in using this science is to say that we're very aware of this when it comes to other creatures. We are very aware of their relationality and the importance to their flourishing of living in stable family units. We just need to turn that knowledge on ourselves to see what we've been doing since the revolution. D.C. Schindler approaches that same thing from kind of a philosophical angle where he talks about, in a metaphysical sense, everybody's made up of matter and form. And the more a particular kind of life is geared towards form transcending matter. So an example of form transcending matter is like intellect and will. It involves bodily activity, but it's chiefly concerned with an immaterial action. So the more that life approaches that, the more the upbringing of the young takes more time 
and more other people. So if you think of a lower organism, like a single cell organism just dividing, that doesn't take any nurturing whatsoever. They just divide. Um, if you get further up the chain of being, further up into the animal kingdom, lower level animals just kind of spawn and have huge litters, but they don't really raise those those young. Those young are just kind of ready to survive. If you get to still higher animals, if you get into mammals like apes, they have to raise their young. Elephants have to raise their young to be part of the herd, etc. With humans, we have the longest period of nurturing and raising. And that has to do with not just like our slowness or anything like that. It's not that there's something particularly slow about human kids uh, that requires more attention. It's that there's more in their being that needs to be brought out that raw material existence can't do, that only family members can do, which is why we have parents for so long, which is why siblings are helpful, which is why extended family is helpful. Because we don't just need to learn how to leave the nest or be potty trained or pay taxes. Like we need to learn how to love a person for their own sake without expectation of some kind of return, which is a lot harder. <laughs> yes, that's a great point, Andrew. I just wanted to throw in the example of elephants here because it so beautifully illustrates what you're talking about. Baby elephants stay within 50 feet of their mothers for the first eight years of life. <laughs> Let that sink in. That's an example of what you're describing. And so if we hold ourselves to a standard like the elephant standard, I think we can see that there's been a kind of abdication of that duty toward the young. And again, this is not finger pointing. This is the result of many years of the wrong kind of messages being sent about what babies require, what toddlers require, what sacrificial love requires. And these messages have been devised in defense of the sexual revolution, in defense of radical autonomy. And so here again, the animal science intersects beautifully with our need to learn from it. Right. And we at the top of the pyramid require the greatest amount. Now, not uh, staying within 50 feet of the mom until through age eight. <laughs> right. I don't think I don't think no, many parents I don't think would go for that. Urging that. <laughs> yeah. What's proper to us as human beings, um, which is more than we've been getting since the sexual revolution. And, you know, another area where this came up very recently, there was a study done by the Institute for Family Studies looking at what parents care about when it comes to family policy. And item number one that over 80% of parents thought was necessary that wasn't really getting addressed was parental control over kids' social media and kids' access to technology and pornography. These are all major priorities that family connections would help in uh, raising kids to become more human. And it's something that like maybe they could use an assist from the law to require kids to get parental permission before they start a social media account and start that isolating process. Yeah, I think it's an encouraging sign. And I hope listeners take hope from it that parents are more aware now than we used to be about the importance of all this and especially of social media. There are a lot of flashing red lights out there about social media use and adolescent mental health, for example. Just this week, headline news from the CDC uh, because of a study showing that teenage girls, something like three out of five of them, show signs of depression. That's a very serious proportion. And there are a lot of reasons to think this is linked to social media. But social media and the dive into the cell phone, the dive into the laptop, 
also relate back to what we're talking about, because you have to ask, why are so many people unable to disentangle themselves from these devices? And I think part of the reason has to be absence of deep social connection, absence of familial connection in particular, including a critical mass of family members trying to pull kids out of this stuff as needed. Mm-hmm. This, again, is where the deep loneliness that we see is coming from. And I want to be very clear, Andrew, that in this book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, like the previous book, I'm not advancing a monocausal argument. I am not saying everything traces back to this. I think current technology in particular is deeply worrisome and driving a lot of the problems we see with young people. But what I am saying is, This thing, the revolution, is the least acknowledged cause of our social disintegration today. And that's why we really need to look at it. And that is why not only people in religious orbits, but people everywhere need to revisit this thing and ask that question, has it been a net plus or a net minus for society? And here again, I see room for hope because as mentioned in some footnotes in the book, there have been some books recently, just the last couple of years, coming out of secular precincts and asking this question, hey, has this been good? In in the case of these books, they're asking, has the revolution been good for women specifically? And answering no. But I think it's a good sign, however limited that inquiry is, it's a good sign that people are having second thoughts and feeling comfortable expressing them in the public square in a way that they wouldn't have even 10 years ago. You know, I was thinking about with the family connection thing and the what you call human subtraction. I was thinking about a hypothetical where I was on a date with a woman and she asked me like how many siblings I had. I'm an only child in reality, but I, I thought of um, a hypothetical where I told her I grew up with two sisters and what her reaction would be versus hearing that I was an only child. And I imagine that her uh, experience on that date would be better if she knew that she was dating or on a date with a guy who grew up with sisters rather than a guy who didn't. And the, f- <laughs> and the fact that we, you know, people in general have fewer siblings mean that mean that guys have fewer sisters and are therefore less conditioned to treat women well, or not to say that like being an only child means you're misogynist, because I'm not trying to claim that about myself. But I think I'd have an easier time relating to women if I had grown up with sisters. That again goes to the question of social learning. And obviously, one of the things we can't control in life is our siblings and whether we get them. But there is obviously an advantage there when it comes to learning about the opposite sex in real life, just by living around it, as opposed to learning about it from screens or from apps, however well-intentioned. And once again, this is not to talk about any individual case, yours, mine, anybody else's, but (laughs) in the aggregate, I think this more atomized way of living has reduced social learning. So for example, there are a lot of girls coming out of homes with just a mom, There are a lot of boys, too. But girls in particular coming out of a home with just a mom are at a serious disadvantage when it comes to knowing about men. And what I see looking at what they say on social media, what college students report, is a real deep fear of men on the part of many young women. 
again, this is partly a function of social learning and partly a function of the very real rise in the use of pornography, um, which also terrifies young women for very good reasons. But once more, we go back to the fact that we're not saying the 1950s were a great place. You know how <laughs> people who are traditional minded are always accused of saying, let's go back to the 1950s. That's not the point. The point is that for some people, a lot of people maybe, the world is a better place with more people in it who have our backs and are related to us and can be presumed to care about us in a primal way. And ever since the sexual revolution took hold, a lot of people have been living as if those things don't matter. And this is part of where our social divisions and unrest are coming from. And I think maybe one of the areas where people might push back on that, a reason they might give for deprioritizing family connections, social relations like that, is, is kind of a version of my neighbor is hell. Hell is other people where who I really am is sort of compromised if other people close to me are making some other claim on that, on my quote unquote identity. So if, you know, if who I really am is a father or an uncle or a brother or a son, as, you know, people maybe before the, re the revolution might have been more likely to say, if you would ask them who they were, then I can't be, quote unquote, who I am and fulfill my identity. And we see this a lot with people identifying in some LGBTQ kind of way, where this who I really am is often defined in contrast to a paternal figure, whether a literal parent mm -hmm. or some, some cultural entity that is making a contradictory claim about identity. I'm wondering, what do we want this individual personal sense of identity to accomplish? Like, is it what we care about the most? Like if you identify as a fan of a particular sports team or political party, is it what makes us unique from other people? Like what only we are? Um, or is it like what we are at the most fundamental level? I don't know which one of those we're trying to make identity mean. Do you have any thoughts on well, that? Yeah, I do. I think part of the confusion here, and it's widespread, is that Something about post-revolutionary life has really flattened the horizon for lots of people. In other words, it's a sad fact when people identify themselves first and foremost by their erotic attractions, for example. Yeah. That's sad. Why is it sad? Because first of all, those attractions can be fleeting. They might change tomorrow, meaning your identity changes with them. But it's sad, most of all, because that collapses so much that is rich about every individual into one flat fact, erotic attraction. By contrast, how much more textured and interesting is an identity that is made up in part of one's relation to the cosmos? Who are you? I'm a child of God. And one's relations to other people. Who are you? As you were saying, Andrew, I'm I'm a mother, I'm a cousin, I'm an aunt, I'm a grandmother, I'm etc. It's a much richer understanding of identity to say that I am about my relations in this world with other people and vertically with a god, a cosmos, that I am playing different parts, but being the same person, as opposed to saying, I am reduced to the exact amount of melanin in my skin. That's the most important fact about me. So I think part of reviving the culture, part of 
bringing beauty back to the world is reviving this deeper sense of identity, which I realized sounds very abstract, but I think we're seeing it its absence played out around us all the time. And it would be a better place if we could restore that richer understanding of self. And that is to say, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a better guide to all that than any social media of our time. You know, that that identifying with just one sexual attractions, like that doesn't even hold up for people who tend to be tra- attracted to members of the opposite sex. Like you shouldn't go around identifying as somebody, or I shouldn't go around identifying as somebody who is attracted to women because that either means I'm a womanizer or there's one particular girl that I like can't get over or who I'm dependent on for all of my meaning or something like that. Neither of which are healthy. So yeah, like in order for me to really give myself away, I have to have a more stable sense of that kind of identity. And it seems like this this absence of these relationships that we've been talking about has a, this like weird paradoxical effect. The thing we were seeking in the revolution was individuality, which seems to be the thing that we've lost because we need family relationships in order to have a healthy individuality in the first place. This has been very strange. Yes, that's very well said. And Again, I think this explains a lot of what we see in the current scene, where we see people driven to these identity groups, whether based on gender, ethnicity, whatever, that are increasingly powerful in Western politics. Why are they so frantic to flatten themselves in this way, to reduce themselves in this way? And I think the answer is people are coming increasingly out of situations where they're only tenuously attached to their families. They are often not attached to organized religion of any kind at all. And they are being driven into these groups in the hopes of finding something like a robust family, like a family that will protect them and have their backs and operate as families do. And we see this very primordial emotional attachment that people have to these groups. This is not politics as usual. If you transgress, It's that simple. You get cast out and there is no redemption. You can never come back unless you toe the line. I think the absolutism inherent in these groups tells us, again, that they are operating like families, that people are bringing the emotional, unbidden, unthinking loyalty to them that most of us bring to family proper. And when they have to defend that group or that thing, it is like it feels like defending a family. Exactly. That is autonomy at its finest, the idea that we can reinvent our world, including even our families, to be like the families we want. We hear about glitter families, for example, that are said to replace the oppressive family units that some people come from. Glitter families? Glitter families. So what's the problem with this idea? It fails the emotional test, first of all, because if you were to ask most six-year-olds, for example... Barring a case of abuse, barring something unthinkable on the outside of things. If you were to ask most six-year-olds or preschoolers, what kind of family do you want? They would want the family they have. They want (laughs) what they know, right? And similarly, at the other end of life, it doesn't really do an ailing 90-year-old much good to be told that it's time to create their own family. So... When you're looking at the most vulnerable among us, the youngest, the oldest, I don't see any evidence 
that replacing the family into which they're born with some other kind of self-designed DIY family is something that they're interested in. So that's the problem with that theory. But there are other problems. I mean, in the book, I get into, again, some of the social science about children doing better in, generally speaking, biological families headed by a man and a woman. There's been a ton of research on this. Every sociologist knows this. Every sociologist knows what happens when you take dad out of the home, at least in some cases. And it's all information that is hard to talk about and often suppressed because, again, it runs against the narrative that since the sexual revolution, we've all been liberated. Right. And people feel like their life choices are being criticized and condemned and they're on on trial for because their relationship didn't work out or something like that. And yeah. People are naturally resistant to both of those things. Yeah, of course. But it also means that, and this is a tough one, but it's true. The traditional teachings of Christianity are on a collision course with all of this. The Mm -hmm. traditional teachings of Christianity cannot be squared with the demands of the revolution. And over and over, we see people try to do this. We see efforts to make peace with the revolution, let it infiltrate the church this way, that way, hoping everything will be all right. But the fundamental conflict between Christianity's understanding of the human person and the revolution's understanding of the human person as an autonomous creature that prioritizes his sexual drives, these are antithetical views. This circle can't be squared. And this is part of where the conflict we see is coming from. It is a conflict that we've seen more and more because it it does get presented in these very personal apparently vulnerable terms like this is who I am. And if you're rejecting this, then you're rejecting me as a person. And therefore, the the answer is inclusivity of the person and also these other things as well that are sort of lumped in with the identity of the person. So it gets very tricky to kind of disentangle that language. Yes, but in the long run, I really believe that Christianity has the advantage here because the secularist world, the world of identity politics, the world with this post-revolutionary understanding of the human person is not a world that offers redemption and everybody needs redemption. As I was saying, the fact that if you transgress in any of these groups, what the group demands may be, you will be cast out and you can't come back. This is a miserable world. And I think the Christian understanding of redemption you do wrong, you come back, you're welcome back, you'll always have this family, just say sorry, that's all it takes, and feel sorry. I mean, that is a beautiful understanding that comports with human nature, because deep down inside, we all know that we do things wrong. We all know that we want a place that we can come back to and be forgiven. The secularist option doesn't offer that, and that, I think, will ultimately be its undoing, but there's going to be a lot of uh, struggle in the meantime. When you were talking about what a person wants in their family at the beginning of life and at the end of life, and also this, it makes me think like there is an inherent character of gift that the biological family offers that found families can't. Because when you choose your surroundings for yourself, that's not a gift, right? That, That doesn't come to you from without by somebody else's choice. Whereas I think Chesterton talks about how like the greatest adventure is something that you haven't chosen. And, you know, when you don't choose your parents, those parents can be a gift to you. Now, like you said, there's always exceptions of abuse and things like that. 
But also at the end of life, you are more and more dependent. And therefore, that gift of, in this case, younger relatives becomes much more immediate or much more immediately meaningful. So, yeah, that, that sort of gift is also uh, what mercy is, too, and something that really the family is inclined or, I guess, disposed to offer to family members better than found family for the reasons you said. So, yeah, it seems like when, when you're just an autonomous individual, it's harder for you to receive a gift, including those, those most important gifts that, that we talked about. So, yeah, I wonder if gift is, a, is an ingredient in this somehow. That I think very much so. Self-sacrifice maybe like a muscle and the more it's exercised, the better you get at it. And part of what is beautiful about family life is that you have individuals who may be as different as possible from one another who have to figure out how to live together and not only survive, but also to create a common project together, which is the family itself. It makes me sad, and also I think vindicates the thesis of this book, to see that so many young people are afraid of commitment, marriage, family. And of course, it's not their fault. It, often they haven't seen vibrant examples in their own lives. But also the messages they're given are wrong, like get your education and your financial life fully established and then think about having a family. This is exactly the worst advice to give people who are, in many cases, already struggling with loneliness coming out of small or fractured families themselves. And it's, it's also terrible advice for the long run, because as we've been discussing, from the point of view of the other end of life, looking back, what do you want your deathbed to look like? Do you want to be surrounded by loving people? Or do you want to look back and say, as Frank Sinatra did, well, I did it my way and nobody's here, but I know that I was that autonomous individual all along and now it's making me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's exactly. Um, but there's truth in it. One of the most pessimistic things people can say about their own lives when they're in a, you know, when they're in a low moment is I'm going to die alone. And if alone is one of the greatest notes of pessimism that we can express, then we have to examine other areas where we are maybe seeking out aloneness, even unintentionally. There's also a hopeful message here for the church, I think, because, of course, since none of us can choose where we come from, those of us who might come from pretty messed up places can find that authentic family in the church. The church is not some identity group. From the very beginning, the followers of Jesus are calling each other brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. This is a real family with a relation to the cosmic order. And so people who are looking for those things, especially young people who have been taught by the popular culture to disdain Christianity, really need to know that all those things are on offer in the church. Yeah, I think that's a great point to end on because it's it's the only other kind of blood relationship, right? <laughs> there's biological blood relationship and then there's the blood of Christ. And both of those, right, like you're saying, can can offer that that grace. All right. Well, Mary, I think that we'll, uh, we'll wrap up there. Where can people find you online? So I have a website, maryeberstadt.com, and that has information about all the books and articles, interviews, etc. 
And also, of course, you can find the new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, at Ignatius Press, at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, etc. And we'll have a link to both uh, maryeberstadt.com and Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited in the episode notes as well, so you can find them there. Mary Eberstadt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. And we are back to talk about CODA. The Academy Award Best Picture winner released in 2021, directed by Sean Hader. Kara Bach, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. CODA, which stands for Child of Deaf Adults, is a family movie slash high school movie about a girl in Massachusetts. Shout out to New England. I was wondering, I'm like, is this Massachusetts or is this just like Maine? I guess Boston is like the city that's close by to everybody, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no, they're in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is, like, north of Boston and south of where I grew up in New Hampshire. Oh, interesting. So, I can sort of kind of relate to the geographic setting in this movie. But, yeah, Boston is basically the capital of New England. <laughs> uh, spoiler alerts for Coda, when she goes to college at the end in Boston, it's not that far from where she lives. It's like an hour drive at most. Mm. Plenty of Red Sox regalia, so go Sox, kid. <laughs> but, anyway... Coda is actually a remake of a 2014 French-Belgian film, correct my pronunciation, La Famille Bellier. I was surprised how much this movie was about music, which makes sense as, a, as an obstacle for a family of a deaf father, a deaf mother, a deaf brother, and a hearing daughter to try and overcome. But I was still surprised because from what I knew about this movie, I just thought it was going to be about growing up with deaf parents as a hearing child. Well, in that way... So you sort of mentioned briefly in the intro that this is a high school movie. I did not realize it was a high school movie. But once I situated myself in that uh, sort of like narrative framework, it having a musical element makes a lot of sense, a la many of these high school movies having some kind of <laughs> musical element. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like a reverse Mr. Holland's opus because it- Mr. Holland's Opus is also like a very sentimental movie from the 90s. This sort of feels like it was from the 90s, too, uh, about a music teacher whose son is born deaf and he has to like grapple with that. Mm. This time, the rest of the family is deaf and the daughter who is musical is hearing. And you see it from her side as a student and as a child instead. So it it felt like kind of this was a a companion piece, probably more sophisticated than Mr. Holland's Opus, (laughs) which is not subtle at all. Yeah, I feel like if you're going to, with the caveat of saying it's a high school movie, it is definitely like the most prestige version of a high school movie. I think because it's set in this like high school movie structure, it gives a little bit of levity to what otherwise could be like an extremely heavy and difficult topic that they're dealing with. And I feel like it it doesn't take away from the seriousness of the topic while also I feel like it just humanizes it so it's not too cerebral. You can be serious and funny at the same time. Yeah. The teacher is a great character. Like speaking of just the nice little ways that they make him just normally human. Like I really appreciated, well, as somebody who did take Spanish in uh, high school and college, the fact that he's like, don't embarrass yourself by trying to (laughs) do the R. Just call me Mr. B. It was like, that is definitely like, that is true. That is. And teaching high school music there, like, yes, it's kind of close to Berkeley College of Music, which is extremely prestigious. And we can talk about a little bit later. But in Gloucester, it's not it's not a feeder school for Berkeley, I don't think. (laughs) So it's not like 
he doesn't have a lot of prodigies coming through his door the way that the main character, Ruby, comes through his door. And he can tell pretty, pretty early on, in spite of her initial shyness, that she has immense musical talent. Which, up until that point, has gone unnoticed because she is always singing to nobody because her family can't hear her sing. And she's clearly self-conscious, too. I mean, I think they do a good job of the whole point that she's like, I didn't sort of speak correctly until I went to school because, like, yeah. I didn't hear anybody speak. So there's there's a scene like that later in the movie where she's having a one-on-one mentor-protege sort of butting heads, and he's trying to get her to, you know, let loose and, and shout not in a not in a agreeable sounding way, but in a quote unquote ugly way. And I think that was supposed to be like what deaf people vocalizing sounds like to her. And I don't think they quite sold it because her like mm-hmm. eventual letting loose like shouting didn't really sound it didn't sound raw enough. Yeah, it still sounded too that. like polished. That's my only complaint about the main actress's performance because I thought she absolutely crushed it. I thought she knocked it out of the park. Well, especially because she's. From the UK, she's British. Oh, so jeez! Yeah, know she that. like <laughs> she totally nails an American accent. I won't. I won't speak to any Bostonies. I'll leave that to you, good Brad. But she she doesn't try it. It's like rolling the R's in Spanish. Like just don't don't bother. Not don't bother. Every, not everybody around there speaks with a Boston accent anyway. So it's it's credible. Totally fine. So yeah, I feel like she sounded perfectly American and. I can't like critique her ASL, but I feel like so much of ASL from the deaf actors who are in the movie is just like so clearly like this physical presence and like the sort of rapidity with which they do it because it's like they're I mean that is their native language and so Mm -hmm. I feel like she does a really good job of selling that she does ASL even though I know she learned it just for the movie. It's amazing. She she learned it for nine months to prepare for this role while also taking singing lessons and how to operate a fishing trawler. <laughs> yeah, that was another interesting. There's like a lot of very specific things that she is doing in this movie. So yeah. She's like extremely competent, you know, young woman. And that's part of the point. Yeah. Amelia Jones doing a great job playing uh, playing Ruby. Her inklings that her her interest in singing isn't just some like private hobby, but actually might lead somewhere like to college uh, is something that her family doesn't pick up on. Because when she listens to music, her family tells her to take the take the earbuds out because her family can't share that activity the way they can share like her brother scrolling through Tinder, (laughs) which is maybe not considerate of her. And and this this becomes a greater tension when she actually does get into choir and does start to get invested in it. And Mr. V uh, starts tutoring her one-on-one. And she's trying to tell her mother, like, hey, this is actually something that is, like, starting to be important to me. And her mother's like, yeah, whatever. Does not compute. It seemed like the, the filmmakers were taking a risk there. Now, obviously, the members of her family who are deaf are played by deaf actors in real life. So they have some sort of purchase on this and some input about how the story gets told. But did you think that was a risk of making deaf people like so unflattering? No, I mean, it felt much more just like typical mother daughter kind of tensions to me, at least like maybe because they sell it in other areas where, you know, Ruby's kind of like everything I do isn't about you. And it felt like it was a lot more of a parental child kind of tension that just happens to have this spin on it. Probably mitigated by the fact that like her dad and her brother obviously are like supportive of her doing other things. They, they both seem a lot more dialed in. Whereas the mom, 
I mean, they're, they're definitely trying to make her seem selfish and self-centered. And they, you know, that leads to like a sort of mini climactic moment later in the movie. But I think, it, it, I don't know, it just seemed to me like such a typical thing because her mom at one point is saying, would you be like a painter if I was blind? Kind of like, a, oh, are you just doing this to rebel against us? Which is... Oh, okay. I didn't even pick up on that. Kind of a typical thing for a parent to be like, oh gosh, you're just doing this to push our buttons. And th- so that's, I feel like that was more of the selling to me of the like parental strife. Okay, that that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. Because I did not read it that way at all. And I think that's the correct way to read it. Because when, when she said that, that, you know, if I was blind, would you be a painter? I thought that was just like, you need to orient your interests around what I appreciate. <laughs> I thought that's what she was saying, um, which is maybe how Ruby picked up on it. But I, I agree with you. I think that's how the mom meant it is like, you're just doing this to rebel. Yeah. Oh, you're into music because we're all deaf. Like, yeah. Yeah, right. How convenient. I mean, I guess that's a, maybe a good jumping off point that this movie, even though it has all the trappings about music and the like tension of a kid who wants to go off and do their own thing. I feel like the reason why this was actually an Oscar contender is because it does a good job of grappling with deeper questions about your responsibility to your family. Yeah. So the, well, the reason why this is all wrapped up in should she go to college, for most people, that doesn't matter. But Ruby is her parents' interpreter. They are in a community where they're the only deaf family. Her father and brother and her really are fishermen. And so... You know, she has to be on the boat with them by law so that somebody who can hear can like be out on the radio. Like she's the one who is who negotiates with the guys on the docks for how much they're going to sell their catch for. Like she's she really is their window to the outside world. And you see it in all these like little different ways that they rely on her so intensely. Yeah. And I think I think as a Catholic, it definitely brings up a lot of questions even like, you know, my parents are getting older and you can just see down the road, you're like, where, where is our responsibility to our families to take care of them? And, you know, to do the honor your mother and father, I think is like a very central, real question, especially I think in America where we just don't live in multi-generational households. And like, there is more of an accepted narrative of like, you leave the home and you're gone. And like the idea of taking your parents on like a lot of people send their parents to nursing homes and things like that, which is like totally fine. But I think that it, it like really hits on a deeper question that many of us have about like, what is the responsibility that we have to take care of our family? And like, what, what level of sacrifice is appropriate? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, counterbalance to just like a pure parents just don't understand kind of thing, which we see in a lot of movies. Um, we talked about it, which I think we talked about in episode 80 with Coco. Coco, I think, did a great job, but it's just a different, uh, it's a different sort of thing because the family doesn't depend on the kid to make mm-hmm. shoes in that movie. The way that this family depends on Ruby to like talk on the radio to the Coast Guard so they don't get commandeered. I, I agree that's where the mother is coming from. If she sees that her family depends on Ruby to keep them afloat in some ways or keep them like relating to the hearing society like well enough, she should probably relate to her talent a little bit better. If she knows that a news crew is going to come and do a feature on them because of their plucky startup co-op venture, she should tell her daughter before they, the, the news truck yeah. actually shows up to film. Mom, <laughs> what are you doing? 
I feel like I appreciated that they didn't try to make the mom actually really great. It's like, there's a lot of things where it's like, yeah, you should be super frustrated with your mom. She's like kind of terrible about (laughs) really normal things like that. We're like, no, you can't just out of the blue be like, hey, you have to stay here because we've got this thing. Yeah. I I think Ruby is a really compelling character because she obviously feels this great connection to her family. But she's not not in a way that is like, my family is terrible. She's like, I love my family. And like, it is important for me to be there for them. And I just really appreciated that it wasn't a very like typical sort of roll your eyes. I mean, that's why I think this was in contention for, for Best Picture, because it does deal with these more complicated issues in a very like realistic way. And she's the kind of character where, like you would want to be, you want to be that kind of person who'd be like, would I put my family sort of above my own needs because perhaps it is like for the greater good. Like, you know, in the end, there's a story of like her parents coming around. But so that, you know, it's like all ends well. But I feel like even if you think that it's not healthy for you to stay with your family or like there's other reasons not to, the fact that we have a desire in our hearts for this is like because it is in our heart in a sort of a supernatural way to like we do have community and like natural responsibilities to our family that feel like they should be fulfilled, even if we can't always fulfill them. Which is funny. The brother pushes back on that uh, later in the movie where he says, we, we don't actually need you. Um, we can get by j- like just fine. I can take care of this family too. And this is at a point where Ruby has sort of decided, well, she's going to She's going to forget about the the music path and stay with her family and do that self-sacrificing sort of, um, or embrace that sort of self-sacrificing life. He's coming from a place of, I think, defensiveness, because he does he wants to be seen as useful. He wants to feel useful, too. But he might be, well, I mean, in the end, he is right. You know, they, they do find a way to make it work with, with her going off to college. You know, everybody is confronting the notion of self-sacrifice for the sake of a family member, right? Ruby comes right up to the the edge of that choice and is willing to make it. And eventually her family are the ones who do make the choice. They decide to, to hire a hearing deckhand to sort of fill her shoes in a practical sense. To the like point about the brother, I think that's another one where like that's just so human to like need to feel needed and competent. And like he's obviously like a I don't want to say typical young man, but it, he's a he's a guy who like wants to provide for his family and he feels able to do that. But yeah. that he's in a way, Ruby is kind of like in the way of him just like being able to try because like, yeah. well, Ruby can go talk to them. And he's like, I could I could do it. And in a way, he's like not being given the opportunity to try and fail. You know, it's sort of like she's this safety net and that's why he pushes back on it so hard. He does. He does turn out to be among the three deaf people in the family. He's the one that's best at relating to the hearing community in spite of the bar fight that he gets into because he does he does manage to uh, ensnare Ruby's best friend. (laughs) who is like a wild child in the first half of the movie and is like lusting after her brother (laughs) in a very unhealthy way and then they get together and like the next time and for the rest of the movie like the friend and now girlfriend of the brother is just helpful and supportive and nice (laughs) (laughs) maybe we can talk about some of the like marital depictions here because i thought that they did 
again, like a kind of nice job of like, she's wild, but like her mom is in some, I don't know, some like messy affair slash series of boyfriends. And like, it felt like a very clear connection between like her family situation is a mess. And so like she sleeps around because she's kind of a mess. And then they have another character later who is talking about, I guess this sort of becomes Ruby's boyfriend. Miles. Yeah. Miles. Yeah. Miles is also very explicit about the fact that his parents kind of hate each other and are in a terrible marriage. And he's like, I like hanging out with you guys. Cause like your parents love each other and they're like kind of crazy about each other. And I wouldn't be embarrassed about that at all. If I were you in spite of Ruby's parents, uh, like comical insistence on contraception, um, which we're obviously not like going to endorse, but their relationship with each other seems very healthy to the outside world or seems perfect to the outside world. Cause everyone else's marriage is broken. Which is probably an underlying reason why Ruby gets bullied at school is because the the other kids see her like parents picking her up and they're, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of dorky, but on the other hand, they wish they had that. Yeah, I think I think it is a nice recognition that a healthy, happy marriage is something still worth pursuing. Yeah. Worth holding up as an ideal um, or as a model. It's funny. There's a lot of things about this movie that feel like you said, this feels a little bit like a 90s movie. And I might even say it feels sort of like better than a nineties movie in the sense that like Ruby is not promiscuous at all. She's like clearly very sort of shy and like has this very sweet kind of relationship with miles. Uh, you know, she like has a crush on him, but then it, turns into something that seems extremely sweet. It's not like this super sexualized thing. Her parents are the ones who are uh, who assume that they are going to have sex and they never do. Certainly it's never made clear in the movie, right? It's not like that's not part of the narrative at all and has like a sort of old school sensibility to it. Like it just doesn't feel like a 2022 movie on Apple TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a best picture winner. I got to say, Miles, if the girl you have a crush on is already bullied at school and then you catch her deaf parents having sex, do not tell anybody about that. Oh my gosh. How could you possibly think that would not be a catastrophe? It's like, "Oh, I told my one friend." I'm like, "You told your one terrible friend like who's obviously <laughs> telling everybody like you need new friends <laughs> uh, yeah which he atones for it i think he's actually sorry that actor kind of gives off like a i don't really understand what's happening teenage boy <laughs> performance which is pretty Definitely. good but it was it was cool how her parents like both of their kids get romantically involved with hearing people and their parents are perfectly fine it would have been so easy for the movie to make that like a source of manufactured conflict and they didn't they didn't take that easy way out which was good i feel like they center the drama on things that matter was like and i think that they make the stakes sufficiently high we're out of time for this episode but kara and i had a lot more to discuss about coda so be sure to stay tuned for the rest of our conversation in episode 109 in the meantime be sure to share this podcast with your friends leave us a review on apple podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts Bye now, and God love you.